You're listening to Points in Between. This is the final episode, episode 10, American. I'm going to start this final episode deep in the weeds. In episode 5 of this podcast, I introduced some of Horace Mann's 19th century ideas about why public schools should even exist. What I left out was the part of Mann's 1848 report that acknowledged earlier ideas about education. He expanded on an argument most famously associated with Thomas Jefferson's attempt to create a public school system in Virginia in 1778, before the Constitution was even written. Jefferson's proposed schools would not have educated all Virginia's residents, and his attempt to get them created failed. Virginia didn't create public schools until the late 19th century. But his bill for the more general diffusion of knowledge, as he called it, articulated the oldest of our ideas about why we need schools in America. In his first sentence, he warned that even in the best, most representative forms of government, people in power would try to become tyrants. Educated people will recognize would-be tyrants and stop them from destroying American democracy. In other words, America can't stay America unless its citizens are educated. Added to man's ideas, this means that schools don't just create a community of people with shared American values. They don't just provide a path to opportunity. They also give people the ability to preserve American liberties and institutions. What does that mean for young people who come from other countries into American schools? In this final episode of Points in Between, you'll hear responses to two questions. Do you feel like you're an American? And... If you do, what does that mean to you? I wasn't asking about citizenship status, although I'm sure for some people, the naturalization ceremony itself is a big moment of emotional transition. Instead, I was curious about the cumulative effect of all my interviewees' interactions since they came into the country. Each of them has been one of the millions of students in American schools waiting for the clock to tick down in the last minutes before summer break. So... Did participation in tests and activities make them feel like they were part of this place? Has learning to read cultural cues and making friends change them? Did all of this, in short, make them belong? What becomes clear in the responses you're going to hear is that Americanness is not just a matter of internal transformation. Claiming membership in a community is a negotiation between what a person feels on the inside and what others think about them on the outside. Whether newcomers feel like they can join the American community, whether they even want to see themselves as one of us, has a lot to do with our perceptions of them and our responses to them. We, people who identify as American, are unequivocally part of the equation. So we're going to start with two people who currently see themselves as definitely not American. First, Shiraj from India. What I'm planning to do is um, I'll definitely do college here. But after college depends, I would experience like a few years of like whatever work here, two or three years maybe. And then depending on if I like it, if I like the life, if I like, if I made friends, if it depends on like how it's going. How long can you stay here without becoming American in some way? I can stay here all my life without being, because I've grown up in that culture and it's still, even now, like my parents, my sister and my parents, we, we talk in um, our language, we don't, uh, I never talk in English in, in, um, in my home because I respect my country and I, I kind of feel however long I live here, I will follow my tradition or my culture. I mean, it, that won't change for me because I know many people who have changed it because maybe it's cooler here, but not personally, no, I would not change my culture or whatever for, for being American. But Shiraj is a teenager. It's hard to predict how life is going to turn out. Maybe, for professional or personal reasons, he'll find himself still here in 10 or 20 years. The friends I have, they're, they're American, but their parents are Indian. But they talk in English and they, they answer back in English. or they even, um, Everything they do is American, but their parents, everything their parents do is Indian. If I stay back here, I wouldn't want that to happen with my future. I mean, I wouldn't want to, uh, if my parents are asking me something in our language, I wouldn't want to answer in English because it's kind of, not weird, but 
also mean I mean not mean but it's, it's just different I wouldn't want that to happen even if I have kids I wouldn't want them to I would I would definitely want them to like to learn about American culture but at home at least you know follow Indian whatever culture Omar from Syria knows he has already picked up some small local cultural habits from his community in Vermont. I say sorry way more often than I did before because also people here say sorry a lot. Even if they didn't actually harm you or even if they didn't actually cause you any trouble, they would just say sorry. But as he explains, this is a long way from feeling a change in his core sense of identity. But to change me to a level where I would feel that I'm becoming an American, I think it would take at least like 10 years of constantly living in the U.S. and interacting with people that are like largely Americans. But what I would think is the biggest shift would be is when this, when my connection with the country doesn't become just professional and academic, but when it becomes personal. So I would think where most people change and have a big shift in their, like in their identity is where, when they have a relationship with an American. When there is a marriage, when there is when there is a partner, that's where I think the whole game changes. And I mean, I don't know what's gonna happen with me five, ten years from now, but I don't see myself marrying an American. But this might happen, and I, if this happened, that would be the biggest change. Yet still, I think even if I live my whole life in the U.S., I will teach my children Arabic, and I will tell them that you're Syrians, and I will tell them that. This is your history and this is your culture and, and, and. So I don't think that I will reach ever a point where I will be, where I will, like when, a level where when someone asks you, hey, who are you? That I would be identifying myself, hey, I'm Omar, I'm Omar, I'm from the US. That I think will never happen. But definitely I would have changed a lot. Shiraj and Omar both discuss identity as a fundamentally binary proposition. They expect that long periods living in the U.S. might change their behavior, but it won't change their answer to the question, as Omar puts it, what are you? I asked Ruth first about her transition to Mexico when she was eight, and about how her sense of identity changed then when she returned, against her will, to the U.S. at age 16. It's very much a story about the messy relationship between our internal sense of identity and our public persona. Here she is talking about her identity in Mexico. I know that after three years, I was really much more identified with Mexico. And I remember coming back to visit my grandmother, who was still in Ohio, and her being a little indignant that I liked Mexico so much and asking that I explain to her why Mexico was better. And I couldn't begin to find the words to tell her why everything just felt better there than here. I'd say throughout the whole time I lived there, I still felt like I didn't belong. I was still white, I was still from the US. A lot of times when criticism arose about me, it would somehow end in, oh, that's because you're from the US, that's because you're a gringa. Did you fit into a particular group because of your apparent ethnicity? Um, yeah, I, fi- I fit into the more affluent, dominant, but not the majority group. So I think after being there for a long time, people stopped asking me where I was from and assumed that I was Mexican, especially when they heard me speak or when they talked to me on the phone, there was never any question. And I tried really hard to fit in in that way. And at the same time, at some point they'd be like, oh, but where are you from or something like that. So yeah, I was granted kind of the upper echelon of the Mexican culture belonging, like privileged. There's privilege, but because it's not the majority, it isn't necessarily safer or like you don't stick out or you feel like you belong. So it's a different feeling than being white in the U.S. and having privilege. When she returned to the U.S., the distance between how she looked and how she felt inside grew. Right away, I was really aware of how that was different because there was no way for me to carry my identity on myself, like on my skin. I was an oddball in the sense that it was going to be hard to find people who had had a similar experience to mine, people who had a bicultural identity and 
knew what it was like to feel like you don't belong in either place. I feel like some of your questions have been about, do I feel more kind of settled, that this is my home, that this is, that I have an identity that I feel more able to articulate. And I do, I do. I definitely feel more and more comfortable with this idea of biculturalism. And as I spend more decades in the U.S., then it feels like, is it a fraud that I'm still claiming Mexico that was so long ago? And yes, it was important years, but somebody else wouldn't make something, wouldn't make this of it. And so then returning to, well, all I can do is be faithful to my experience. And and that's it. Roya, who was born in Afghanistan, came to the U.S. when she was 14. Public discourse about immigrants and belonging affected her sense of identity. I think when Barack Obama <laughs> became a president, I felt like, okay, <laughs> I feel American, yes. I think that's the time I realized that I am American, because I vote, I um, am very active of the political situations in America, and also I have a daughter that she's born here, so I, I really want to make sure, you know, to pass on to my daughter if she's going to be here, you know, she's here, this is her country, and this is my country. I, I became an American citizen when I was 18. Um, not because I want to be American. I think I was just like the, the privilege of having a blue passport, <laughs> which is easier to travel, right? But I think um, I started realizing um, uh, when uh, Obama became president. So before that, though, did you feel Afghan? Um, I feel, I feel like an immigrant. An immigrant with the accent that you always people like giving you a hard time. <laughs> you know, like you feel discriminated. You definitely feel that that you're not belong, that, you know, in America. Um, or if you travel outside of the major cities, if you go areas that you just stands up really like odd, you're not fitting to any group. You know, people look at you a certain way. I was kind of like lost. I want to say I'm Afghan, but I mean, I always I say I'm from Afghanistan because it's the first thing when people look at you, where are you from? Afghanistan, you know? So because of my accents. So when you speak automatically, they consider you're not American. So where are you from? So it's like, whether you say it or not, you're gonna just say I'm, I'm Afghan. <laughs> so that that's how. And 2008 kind of remind me like there's so many other people who accept immigrants in these countries, so you don't have to be born like I mean like Barack Obama his uh, dad from Kenya. I mean that was like for me connecting as an immigrant to see that that your children could be be something in this country. So that opened up a lot, um, and then um, feeling American is like okay you know vote your vote counts. Um, it's if everybody really vote, things could change. What Roya describes is not a rejection of her Afghan identity in favor of Americanness. It's the story of how she came to feel that she could authentically claim both. In episode eight, I introduced the idea that the people I interviewed are part of a global community with deep historical roots. These people, who cross cultural boundaries at a young age, cultivate complex identities. The historical record shows that observers through time noted, sometimes with disapproval, the ways they switched from one identity to another, mixing and matching cultural tropes and behaviors as they moved from situation to situation. William, who moved from England to Texas, does this. When I was living in London, so both my parents were born in the United States, so technically I'm American, even though I'm uh, London-born. Uh, it was always fun to say I'm American because that's different, that's unique. And now I like to say I'm British, so. Tobias, who has attended schools in Germany, Belgium, and the U.S., does the same. My accent used to be more, the way I describe it is middle of the Atlantic. So it was neither British nor American. So there are a lot of words and phrases and expressions that I use um, that get mixed up or don't come off with an American accent. But most of the time, people assume I'm American. I mean, I'm proud of being an international student, but I definitely uh, code code switch um, and play around with where I'm from, depending on the environment that I'm in. So, for example, last night I was um, 
at an alumni event in New York City, I was essentially um, networking to find a job. So if, if, I, if I was speaking to someone that was more American, I felt was more American, I would emphasize and connect with them on things that I knew was American and knew it would make them feel comfortable. But when I was interacting with someone international or who I knew was, who I knew was you know, more interested in learning about me being international, I would focus more on the international side. So the guy that was from the U.S., I would talk to him about um, Connecticut because he was from Connecticut. I would talk to him about my girlfriend being from Connecticut, that I was going to be going up soon for Thanksgiving. But um, when I was speaking to an, uh, one of the uh, board of trustee members, I was speaking about being German. Um, he worked for Deutsche Bank, so I spoke about being German, where in Germany I was from. Uh, I just made it more about my, the European side of me. Uh, so I, I know I code switch because I know when it works for me and when it doesn't. If you live firmly situated within a single national or ethnic culture, if your personal network doesn't cross those types of boundaries, this may sound insincere, but the multiple commonalities Tobias draws on are genuine representations of his life experience. I don't think it's ever disrespectful. I think that, like I mentioned about the more American guy, I just wanted him to be more comfortable talking to me. So I definitely let him know that I was international, but I focused more on the sort of more American, more comfortable things so that the conversation could get somewhere. Because he's a stranger to me. I'm a stranger to him. So it's easier to talk about things that are common between two people than things that are wildly different. To me, the more interesting thing here is the meaning of the identifier Tobias uses for himself and the group of people who share his particular experience. He says, international. Roya used the same word in episode 9 to describe her community of friends in college, but I suspect this is a subtly different usage. I think Tobias is using international with a capital I, which to me, at least, has different class overtones. I went to a college in Washington, D.C. that was known for its international relations program. There were students who came from a childhood in another country, international students with a lowercase i. And then there was this group of kids who had attended international schools, people like Tobias's school, with the children of diplomats and world leaders and CEOs of multinational businesses. They came from all continents, and slipped fluently from one language into another. They seemed to share a sense of fashion, an interaction that was a culture all unto itself, not tied to any specific country. Those kids fascinated me. Until that college encounter, I had never even known such an identity existed. I mention this because traversing cultural boundaries, or living in between them, isn't just a matter of personal feelings about identity. The ability to do it freely is also affected by power structures. Newcomer students don't get the luxury of years to think about their sense of identity before they have to articulate it. Part of the school experience is repeated, on-the-spot conversations about the topic. Caroline from Czech Republic fielded frequent questions from her classmates. Oh, where do you like it better? That was the question of the first three years I lived here. You know, what do you like better, Prague or San Diego? And that just... Me answering that question depended a lot on whether, I don't know, what I was feeling at the time, really. At one point, I would say, like, yeah, I love America so much better because here you can just, like, go out in sweatpants to school and nobody will care. Nobody will judge you. In fact, they will praise you for it. And on the other hand, like, some other time I would say, oh, I like Prague so much better because they're fashionable over there, because you, like, go out and see people looking nice all the time. It takes time to develop the capacity to push back against binary questions about identity. But, as Caroline notes, she did it because an either-or choice is just not a real reflection of her experience. I'm really a global citizen. It's not that I'm rejecting who I am or where I was born, but really just happened to be that place. And today, when I'm really facing like deep, down-inside questions about who I am, I really don't have an answer for that anymore. And I'd say, again, that I don't consider myself necessarily anything. I will say I was born in the Czech Republic, and I live in America, and um, I will be a citizen sooner or later. I'm happy that I am who I am, that I am bilingual, and that I know things that I would only ever know if I was born in Europe. 
but I'm also happy to be here and have the chance to really come to my identity in this place. And Caroline sees both the individual factors and the uncomfortable power dynamic involved in claiming a particular identity. The word immigrant has such a negative connotation. It's not that I don't want to use it in any shape or form. Like, I will say, oh yeah, like, I guess I'm an immigrant because I know what that means. But it's it's very also biased, I feel like, especially in media. You notice people that are called immigrants are always going to be uninvited folks, so to speak. And me witnessing that and me never having to deal with any sort of bias. I mean, gee, you know, everybody swarmed me the first day at school and all I got was like, oh, you're so pretty, you're so pretty, where are you from? Oh my God, your accent's so beautiful. And then I'm like, wow, I just went through half my life being bullied at school and then you come to America and, you know, but I now in ret- retrospect, I realize and acknowledge that that was just me and that if I was somebody else, that could have gone very differently. And that fascinates me and it also terrifies me just the fact that like how people perceive different people so when you know i say i'm an immigrant it almost comes as a surprise to even myself to say it out loud because hey i fit perfectly in nobody would think me an immigrant nobody would think me you know coming from anywhere else i mean a lot of people only notice that i have an accent when i get tired or talk a lot because i don't so to speak wear it on my face and like, I hate for anybody else to be in any other position than what I'm in. I kind of want everybody to have the same experience, but it pains me to know that they don't. And then there are some that get picked that heavily and then get pointed at saying, oh, you're an immigrant. So I try to, with my own mentality, enforce this pushback of saying, who really cares where are we all from? Because, you know, America especially is a country of immigrants. So what does it matter? There's this unspoken, but really clearly evident in conversations with people thing about like if you look like you're white tends to be a little bit easier not for everyone but um that certainly has been the experience when i've talked to people it's just so painful to like you know come to that age where you start realizing like because i don't i don't want to have people ask me that question and for me to say oh it's been wonderful here like everybody's so accepting everything's great and then i'm like wait but there's a reason for that because, you know, because I am who I am and it's just, yeah, it's sort of biased within its own that like I get to ex- have certain experiences that other people don't. And I just, I just happen to be the lucky one because the color of my skin or because I don't know, cute accent, whatever it is that the people want to make up. But I, I do know and I recognize that I've had it so much easier and that I just so like right away welcome not even like in terms of social but even like on the um level of paperwork basically you're accepted so much easier when you stand there in LA at the customs and they ask you the question you know what are you doing here do you live here and they start to interrogate you a little bit and I always seen the difference how they look at me versus how they look at other people and how I look like you know just a white pretty little girl saying yeah I go to high school and I work at Staples and whatever and then they just let me through but if you know if it was a family from anywhere else ethnically looking different then it's a completely different situation. Caroline's internal sense of who she is and whether or not she can claim to belong in the American community didn't develop in isolation. They both happened in a constant dialogue with other people's perceptions of her and responses to her. When Kat first moved from Spain to begin school in the U.S., her linguistic identity as a Spanish speaker heavily influenced her social connections. I think in Plano, Texas, I did end up becoming friends, sort of having most of my social life be with Mexican-American kids. And... I think at first I saw myself as very different from them, but then over time that we had more in common than than not, I guess, or I don't know, or they were just very accepting of me. And I think that the kids, the non-Spanish speaking kids at the school were less open and accepting. And so my social world became very much the families that were Mexican-American and I would go to like baptisms and weddings and birthday parties and quinceaneras. 
I continued, you know, certainly any Spanish speaking kid that came to that elementary school after I came there, I, I made a point of reaching out to them and speaking Spanish to them and helping them navigate it. And then when we moved, when we left Texas and we moved to California, I think that in a way that was an opportunity because I now was fluent in English. It was an opportunity to not be an outsider and not speak a different language. And so I don't remember speaking any Spanish at all even though there were Spanish-speaking people at the middle school that I went to, um, I think I just never really even acknowledged that I wasn't quote-unquote American. Um, Just, I guess, because I could. And at that time in life, (laughs) the most important thing was not to stand out, at least in my mind. So I remember, yeah, I don't remember really having any Spanish-speaking friends in middle school. In her new school, because of her appearance and her English proficiency, Kat was perceived as just American. But remember Shiraj and Omar at the beginning of the show. Parents who bring their kids into a new culture have feelings about identity, too. My mom is a really interesting person because she she's very sure of herself. And she was a full adult by the time, obviously, that she came. And so she she never really felt the need to, quote unquote, assimilate in any way. And her identity is very Spanish. She and I had a lot of tension around my intense desire to fit in and her intense desire to have me not need to fit in, if that makes sense. So examples would be, you know, she was horrified by the whole idea of things like Girl Scouts or um, playing on organized sports teams or cheerleaders or... um, these very like American things in her mind that she didn't want me to partake in, but I so desperately wanted to understand and and be part of. So, um, you know, I, I remember one big fight around the first year of high school, there was some formal dance. It must've been like the homecoming dance. And she refused, you know, she was very clear that she didn't believe in that and that she thought it was really strange and pageant-like, and she would not support me going. And I had to, my stepdad and I had to lobby and lobby and lobby for her to allow for me to go to this thing. Um, But she just, yeah, she didn't really feel like I should. She she wanted me to be confident in my identity as a Spanish person, not as an American person. And so I think we struggled about that. How long do you think it took you to meld those two identities in a way that you could not have them be in conflict anymore. Yeah, I'm not 100% sure that it's a finished project, but I know that I went to Spain a lot growing up. So, you know, part of my mom's sort of plan for making sure that the language and the culture didn't go away um, was to basically send me to my family every summer. The day after school got out, um, all the way until school started again. I would spend that time with my my grandparents and my cousins in Spain. And so I maintained that, but it felt very much like two world, like two sides of me. So there would be the me that did these things in Spain in the summertime, and then there would be the American version. And so there were just kind of two um, side-by-side persons <laughs> that lived with me. And, and I think maybe in college, I started thinking about identity and I... I'm becoming friends with people who had experiences living in different parts of the world at different times in their life and really talking about these issues with them kind of helped me understand what, how those, how the two identities can coexist, but I'm not sure that I fully understand it yet. (laughs) The second part of Kat's account about her mom is echoed by Jessica who came to the U.S. from Mexico. I think for them, they see it as like, oh, now their kids are living the American life. And now they see, even with my younger sister, because, I mean, she was she was brought here when she was two. So she is completely, like, American, even the way that, that she dresses as she is. And, yeah, maybe they just see it maybe like a loss, I think. And they have talked to us about uh, about that a lot. That, you know, we kind of lost a lot of our identity. And, like, like and, and I question it because... I mean, I was young, so I wasn't, didn't really have time to develop an identity as being Mexican, and they did. Let's go back for a minute to the first part of Kat's account. 
Her story about what happened when she moved from Texas to California involves both the linguistic and the racial landscape of American society. In Texas, her Hispanic identity trumped her racial identity, and she ended up socializing largely with Spanish-speaking, non-white classmates. In Serafin's day-to-day life, his race determines people's initial perceptions of him. People think, until I open my mouth, like people think I'm American. I can walk on the street and then people look at me like, oh, he's, uh, he, he, he's from here. But then when I open my mouth, it's like, oh, you don't really look like. And I was like, well, <laughs> I guess he's the way I dress, right? It's like, yeah, the way you was like, well, whatever. But then it's, I can can tell if I see a African, I can tell, you know, like, oh, he's African. And then it's like, you think so? Yeah, he's African. Uh, He's either from Nigeria or Ghana, you can tell by the way, you know. So it's like, oh, okay, well. But people look at me and like, oh, are you really African? You don't look African. Serafin may find it easy to identify the people he sees as African-born, but most people he meets in the U.S. conflate all blackness together in a way that sort of ironically makes it likely that African immigrants will also be perceived, at least initially, as American. That's what happens to him. All it takes is the right set of clothes. This is an interesting element of the African immigrant experience, and in some ways it's the opposite of the American-born Latino or Asian-American experience. The racial categories that seem immutable to those of us who grow up in the U.S. are, of course, historically constructed, and newcomers have to learn them. For Linguer, who was born in the U.S., but attended school in the Gambia and England before returning to the States, coming to understand blackness in America was a core part of her understanding of her identity here. Again, I didn't really engage that much with black Americans. I feel like I either hung out with the international student crowd, which had some black international students, particularly this girl from, she's from Senegal and from Nigeria. Um, and we were pretty close. And like, I, I hung out, like I'd carve out time to hang out with like my international student friends. Um, but I mostly hung out with white Americans and they mostly did not hang out with black people. So I mostly hung out with them. It's definitely also right to say that I think it was also what I was comfortable with. And I think there's just such an interesting dynamic between African-Americans and people from the continent of Africa, from maybe the African diaspora, because it took me a long time to real- realize this, but just realizing that how much I had like also bought into fear of African-Americans or judgment about them, but like wanting to differentiate myself from them. Because if the people saw me with African-Americans, they assume I was African-American. And my whole thing until pretty recently has always been like, I'm not African-American, I'm Gambian. And now I still say that, but not necessarily to define myself against African-Americanness. It's more to like highlight that I actually, there is a different kind of black experience. Almost just learning my blackness. I think that's been like a really big thing for me and realizing that to an extent people actually don't care where I'm from, they just care that I'm black. And to an extent, my experience is the black experience. My past and my history might not be, but walking around San Francisco day to day, I don't think I have the Gambian experience of being in San Francisco, right? And I found that, at least in my experience, being an African immigrant usually gets you more, I don't know, respect or affirmation or curiosity than if you're African American. This, again, is an example of influencing social relationships by shifting between multiple simultaneous identities. Juan from El Salvador first talked about coming to see himself as Latino. I mean, when I was there, I thought myself a Salvadorian, of course, but um, because I guess looking back now, because I will watch the news and see, you know, how, you know, when they will talk about Latino people here, that's what I refer to. You know, it's Latino community. Latino community. They will talk about Mexicans, Salvadorians, Central Americans, Central Americans, and Mexicans, and, and or Latinos, and overall. He also delved into the details of what it means to be Salvadorian and American, for one of a better term, at the same time. My values, most of my values, about ninety-five percent of my values, they're still Salvadorian. You know. I don't know, it's hard to say because you also see it in other people, like from other ethnicities. When it comes to drug use, for example, um, 
like marijuana, something that you know that uh, that was one of the biggest shocks from that point of view when I came here. How not shocks, but more like I was like surprised um, that that's like smoking tobacco pretty much here. You know, down there, in El Salvador is a big no-no. That the only only like uh, gang gang members do it, um, or you know if you know just criminals pretty much so well you're if you if you're caught smoking marijuana you're automatically tagged as a criminal down there even if you don't go to prison but you know but, but, like society will tag, tag you as a criminal here it's totally different that that's probably the biggest one you know um um that i'm, I'm, st I'm still coming around my wife my wife and i were both pretty traditional when it comes to that i'm i don't know if this is just me but uh, I guess I consider myself to be an open-minded person. When it comes to talking about sexuality and, and politics, uh, like for example, uh, homosexuality, back there, it's not, it's, they don't, people don't look at it as a taboo, because uh, you know, everybody knows like, it exists. But like, the way, the best way I can explain it is like, a few years back, I went, I went to a nightclub, and I went to El Salvador, I went to a nightclub with some friends, and these two girls were making out. Um, they stared at them for a, I mean, you, you could tell when somebody stares at somebody and they looked at them like, like weird, weirdo, what are you doing, right? I mean, I looked at them, but I was like, okay, just two people making out, you know? But then, I, and they didn't say nothing else, you know, we started, you know, uh, having drinks, we danced, and um, when we got out of it, they, oh, they all started talking to them like this was a big deal. And I was like, I was like, what the heck are you talking about, you know? Like, I should take you guys to San Francisco and have, go to a nightclub there, and, and then you'll you'll see how more natural people do this stuff down there. So, so I guess from that point of view, I'm more like American. You know, my I'm just more open-minded about things like that. Raouf pointed out that people come to the U.S. with multiple overlapping identities. Each of them are influenced by experiences in America in different ways. He, for example, came to the U.S. as a Yemeni, an Arab and a Muslim. At this point in our conversation, he focused on how being in America, interacting with his American classmates, affected the Muslim part of his identity. And what I would say is, I think me coming to America, and especially going to college at UC Berkeley, made me a better Muslim. I think the social aspect of it. Yemen is a very conservative, a Muslim country. Um, I think if I was living in Turkey, I wouldn't have that much of a shock or of a change because Turkey is very, I don't want to say very, but it's a liberal, secular, the society and the way they practice Islam. I think there's a lack of understanding of Islam in America. Like, the person that practice Islam in, in Saudi Arabia is totally different than one that practice it and in, in, in not totally but there are changes, major changes. So, you know, for example in Turkey women drive. If you go to Saudi Arabia, rarely, barely, until right now when Mohammed bin Salman, the Crown Prince, uh, enacted a new law and so of allowing women to drive. You you sort of kinda of start to question yourself. Like how far should I go with it? Like, what is the, what, what is the limit? What's the red line? Like, having to maintain my Muslim identity and at the same time live my American dream or my American way of life. For example, in Islamic thoughts and interpretations, like, if you go shake a woman hand then some people will say nah that's not a pro that's that's inappropriate but you go to Turkey you go to other countries you know they would say Tunisia that's yeah, not that's not really haram it's okay um, should you drink should you uh, you know and there are many exam other examples and so this is the struggle uh, but see, with questions comes research and effort to better understand 
what this is all about. And eventually, it's up to the individual to see what works for him or herself. And I had three options. Either to become very conservative, like extreme, like Muslim, right? Uh, or very liberal and neglect my my previous identity. And the third option is a moderate. Like there is only one Islam for me, but the idea is to bring both together and to find a common ground. And that's, I think, um, where am I right now? And I'm very, very glad uh, that I ended up here. Selena, who came to the U.S. from Bosnia, confidently asserts a dual identity. And she traces its origins, though not its fulfillment, back to a school experience she had in her first few months in the U.S. I, I definitely consider myself American. Um, I also consider myself Bosnian. I did have to give up my dual citizenship when I got a secret clearance to be uh, in the military to do one of my jobs. But um, I think it happened for me probably right after 9-11 happened. I didn't have like a full understanding of it. You know, someone had to explain it to me. They had to sit down. One of my teachers did. And they're like, here's why this happened. And here's what's important. Because I was like, hey, why is everyone upset? Like, it's just a building. But I didn't realize like it's a building with thousands of people in it. And it was not an empty building. Building. And then, you know, she kind of like took me through like this and it broke my heart. Like I was so affected that like I probably cried for the rest of the day, honestly. And eventually I joined the Marine Corps because of it. Like everyone, Selena came to America with multiple overlapping identities. Let me just say that I was Muslim when I first got here. So I've taken, you know, Islamic classes and I knew how to read the Quran and I prayed and I fasted and I did all of these things as a kid. So when it happened and I, I was like, these people aren't real Muslims. That was my first thought. Like, I was like, there's no way. Like, this is not what Islam is about. Like, it's a it's a religion of love and peace, and it isn't supposed to be like this. And so um, I tried to explain to other kids, but um, I kind of hit it. I hit a lot about myself. Like, as you can notice, like, I don't really have an accent, but I haven't had an accent since I was in ninth grade. Like, I practiced an American accent because I didn't want to be different. Like, I hid I didn't even realize what a gift, you know, being foreign is and being from this background and how much I had to offer to the world, honestly, until my adulthood, because I was almost ashamed of it, you know? I didn't want to be different. Selena's individual experiences from her childhood during the war in Bosnia through high school in America culminated in a decision to join the Marines. So when I graduated high school, I joined um, on my 18th birthday because my parents wouldn't, I actually was going to graduate early, but my parents wouldn't sign for me to leave immediately, you know, and my dad, he said, well, we left war. So why do you want to go to war? Why do you want to do a thing where you go to war? And I said, but people have made a difference for me. So I had to wait till I officially graduated. She went off to boot camp and eventually served tours overseas. Being Bosnian helped me more in Iraq and Afghanistan than being American did because I saw these people and they were just reflections of the poverty and the conflict and the sadness and devastation that I had experienced. And it allowed me to have empathy and compassion and be um, more involved with them and it actually helped me do a multitude of things there because of that, because of those gifts, um, because people felt like they could talk to me, right? And you know, I would tell them like what my name was, and my name is—it's um, obviously doesn't sound American. Like I'm not a Selena, so they'd be like, "Where's your name from?" And I'd be like, "I'm Bosnian." And then I would start to talk to them, be like, "My father is Muslim and he's Sunni," and you know, we would talk, and then they would open up to me. And the women, not the men. Whenever I had my hair up and I had my Kevlar on, you couldn't really tell with all the gear that I had on that I'm a woman. Um, you could kind of just, you couldn't see anything. Um, but inside of houses, whenever we would interrogate people, I would take my Kevlar off to kind of, you know, be like, I have a bun, I am a girl. And um, the women's reaction was always like, wow. And the kids were like, wow. But the guys were like, they would like spit at me and, you know, they would call me names and stuff like that, which was always really interesting for me. Um, it wasn't what I expected. You know, I thought sometimes, you know, that they should be more grateful that we're there. Than, but then on the other hand, like we are invading their country. But if I was relating it in my own experience, like I would have been grateful for Americans to be there during that time. Right. So it was a very different experience. 
The other accounts we've heard have mostly addressed how newcomers are perceived within America, both by the larger population and within their own communities and households. Selena's story is different here. On the one hand, as a soldier, of course she was still her personal self, the kid whose life was saved by an American soldier in Bosnia, the person who tried to fit into her schools in Utah. At the same time, though, to the people whose houses she entered in Iraq and Afghanistan, she embodied a completely different identity. In episode three, she described how her experiences with Americans as a kid in Bosnia shaped her impressions of Americanness itself. When she joined the Marines, she expected to be, for other people, what those UN peacekeepers had been for her. But this was a different war, one connected to Omar's experience in Syria. And it's a graphic illustration of how big the difference can be between our internal identity and who we are to other people. In this last episode of Points in Between, I wanted to explore two central ideas. The first is the inexact relationship between people's personal experiences and the identities they are both willing and able to claim publicly. The second can best be expressed as a question. What are the boundaries of Americanness? You've heard about times and ways that people felt they could authentically claim Americanness, but how broad and multifaceted is the category itself? To consider those questions, let's start with Vishnu, who was born in the U.S., but lived in India and attended school there up until midway through high school. Like, I don't actually feel as totally Indian because I was born here, like, had this American idea, like, the way you used to talk in India, too. When I learned the language of India, like Tamil and Hindi, I felt like, okay, I'm an Indian. Like, I can be an Indian person. Well, I speak English, so I always know I can, like, be American anytime I want to be. I feel like I belong and define myself in a way. Because, like, I didn't just live in India, like, just in the U.S. I live in both places, so it's, like, a mix, I guess. But it's, like, more American predominantly. In both India and the U.S., he insists, I belong and define myself. For him, being able to communicate makes him authentically a part of both societies. Simon was born in Korea, but educated in the U.S. for his first few years of school. He moved from the U.S. to Korea late in elementary school. When I was introduced into classroom fifth grade, my teacher, she was like, hey, this is a kid from America. His name's Simon Lee, well, in Korean, obviously, but... I was, people were like, I said hi in Korean, and people were like, oh, you know, he's American. I was like, what do you mean? And I think it was mainly because of like my accent. I mean, I'm fluent in Korean now. I learned how to speak Korean properly in Korea, but before then, it was still pretty Americanized, and I didn't know half the vocab that these kids were using. So I would just talk, and they and they they'd say something. I'd be like, wait can you explain that in like simplistic terms or can you explain this better? And like, even though I fit in like face wise, cause I am inherently Korean, people can tell, everyone else can tell if you're not truly a part of this culture. Simon's conception of America and American-ness is defined in direct contrast to how he sees Korea. I think it's a bit different here though, in California especially because we're so diverse. You, can, you don't really, you can't really tell if someone's like per se, um, an outsider just because of their skin color or like their facial complexion. But in Korea, especially when everyone's, you know, Korean, they could tell that I wasn't like meant to be there in a way. The reason why I think America, American means to me is so expensive because I know, I tend to think Korean is like tight and narrow. Like when I think of Korean, I think of, you know, really tight jeans. I think of people smoking in the streets. I think of, um, you know, litter everywhere. I think of, you know, messy politics i think of like those kind of things you know people who are they all dress the same they all have the same haircuts they all have the same makeup like that kind of thing and like cringy k-pop like that's what i consider korean to be but i think from i mean obviously because i've lived in california the whole american aspect it's just so diverse like i see you know basically anything that's not form-fitting or narrow i could i consider it to be like american like a one-on-one tutor compared to like a cram school i think a tutor is more american than than like a cram school i think like you know um like bike to school day i think that's inherently american because koreans we don't no one sets up those kind of things those kind of even like those small things that i think are like maybe some people might not consider like american i think they are because i compare it directly to what korean people might think 
I don't want to make it sound like I hate Korea and like yeah I I I love Korea you know it's like my home I was born in Korea like you know my dad lives there like and I'm not saying I don't have fun when I go back but I'm really proud of the fact that you know I'm living here where people are you know f- free to express not legally but like in general like what people wear there's so many diverse people around me like that kind of thing is like really you know eye opening compared to you know living in Korea where everyone's kind of the same thing We're going to end with Jessica. I guess I, I think that's something I kind of have struggled throughout, like just growing up, because I don't, I, I don't feel like neither. Like I don't feel like I'm Mexican. I don't feel like I'm American enough. Uh, well, one, I don't feel like I'm Mexican enough because I mean, I, although although I do have some of the values, uh, I do I know I have the language. Like I don't think that's enough for me to understand what's actually going on over there and call myself Mexican. And American here, like if you're not white, like right away, like you know, you're not American enough and. And that's the way that's always been pointed out at school too. Like, you know, like you're, you can try to be American, but you're never gonna be American, you know, because you never, you are never accepted by society just by the way that you look. So, do you think it's possible to redefine American to just be what you are? Like, maybe the problem isn't you. Maybe the problem is the definition. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. No. It might be because I feel like what is American? You know, like I feel like they have like this standard like standard imagery of america but if you actually look at all the people that live here like we're all act different we all like different things so then the the question kind of brews with me that what what does it mean to be an actual american like like i don't know that's it i hope you weren't expecting closure the voices you heard here were a tiny sample the people i interviewed came from a handful of countries they all speak english Most of them went to college or are planning to, which also puts them in the minority of people in the US today. In other words, this was anecdote, not data. There are millions of people living their lives in America whose stories are not represented here. But still, I hope the conversations were thought-provoking for you. I hope you'll think about the role that school plays in our collective identity. It's an institution with enormous power to generate shared experiences and ideas. I wanted you to hear what it's like to come into the US through an American school, to hear what it feels like to make that transition, and also to see the construction of Americanness itself through a set of fresh eyes. And last, I hope that hearing these stories would make you consider and reconsider what you mean when you say American. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast. You can find more information about many of the topics mentioned in different episodes on the show webpage. You can find it at cispisglobal.org under resources. That's cispisglobal.org. Points in Between is a production of the California Global Education Project.